Well, hello and uh, welcome to episode four of the uh, current series of Practico podcasts. And we're not even going to call this one a podcast, which is our hilarious play on words, because we might not be talking about costs, despite the fact that my guest today is Jeremy Morgan QC, um, who is extremely well known to anybody in cost law circles and has been a good friend of our firm for many years and is uh, and remains a consultant to our firm. So good afternoon, Jeremy. Good afternoon, Andy. Now, what we're going to be talking about today, um, it, I don't normally say when we're talking, but we're talking at half past four in the afternoon on the 6th of February 2019. And we're going to be talking about Brexit a bit. And it changes, well, it never, it's like Groundhog Day, but it's still, the, it, the scene shifts quite Quickly, so we might get out of date very quickly. So that's the timestamp on this discussion. So a slightly different perspective because um, some of you won't know that uh, Jeremy uh, lives in Italy these days and uh, has done for a few years, and so he's a little bit more affected by this than some of us over this side. Um, so uh, uh, hello, Jeremy, and how's things? And how's things in your Brexit world? Things in our Brexit world don't look very good at all. It's very very depressing. Um, and we are, yeah, directly affected by it all because as of now, if no laws were changed on the 30th of March, we would be illegally living in Italy, as would all the British citizens living in France and Germany and Estonia and Lithuania throughout the, uh, the EU 27. Um, which isn't to say that's going to happen because they are talking about legislating but what they're not doing is um, dealing with the no-deal scenario at a European level. The Europeans have taken the view that either there's a deal, which is the deal they've done, or there's no deal. If they talk about no deal, they will be encouraging no deal because people will say, oh, well, that's sorted, we needn't worry about it. And so they're not talking about it. <clears throat> what they're doing is encouraging, to those of us who are living in their countries, and um, that is in the process of happening. But it's happening in a very haphazard way. There's hardly any detail anywhere. And um, we are, I think, 52 days away from Brexit as we speak. Mm. So it's, it's very worrying. Yes, it must be. Now, just to, um, just, to, just to row back a little bit in time, because I think from memory you've probably been living in Italy for, what, five years Getting on for five. Getting years, on yeah. for that. So well before the uh, well before the referendum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, from from here, we've and I've always had the impression that um, right from early days, the the exit camp have been happy to use uncertainty over status um, of uh, EU nationals living over here, and uh, and happy to um, uh, not reciprocal arrangements that would have guaranteed the position of uh, UK citizens living abroad. So you've always felt as if you're a bit of a pawn in this, do you think? Or Definitely a pawn. I'm not sure it's particularly the exit camp's fault. It's Theresa May's fault, really. Right, OK. Um, because she said, I'm not going to do anything unilaterally for the uh, EU citizens in the UK um, in order to preserve the position of the uh, UK citizens in the EU. But having done that... Having said that, rather, she didn't do anything to help. Because the first thing that happens if you go back to um, when the negotiations opened, the EU came up with a series of proposals which largely guaranteed most of our rights at that time. 
it would have been perfectly easy for Britain to say, that sounds like a very good idea, we'll do that. But instead, they came up with their own proposals, which didn't even refer to the EU ones that had been published before. Mm. So it really was ships passing in the night. This is our lot, this is our lot, and um, we're going to have to start from scratch in the negotiation because we haven't even decided which lot is going to be the basis of the negotiation. Mm. So, no, it was, it was a dreadful start, and the red lines, of course, that she's laid down, which everyone who's listening will be familiar with, have not helped. No. It's been a very, very rigid uh, line from the beginning. Having said that, I mean, in, in relation to the present position, EU citizens in the UK are um, somewhat better off than their counterparts living in Europe because there is in place on the statute book law which protects them. So on the 30th of March, they will not be illegal. We all will be um, because the, the, the Withdrawal Act that uh, was passed last year um, preserved their existing position until something else is done about it. Um, the difficulty is they've at the moment got a bill, Immigration and Social Security bill going through Parliament, which um, empowers the government to change all that. And it's, not, um, it's certainly not clear from the bill what changes they're going to make. They have published a policy paper to say that they will, what they will do, and I expect they probably will, but it's created a lot of confusion in Europe when capitals look at what's going on in England and say, well, how secure are our nationals over there? And uh, the answer is there is this piece of law just going through which could change everything. Mm. So that's caused, it's caused problems. I think we're probably getting over that now, but not completely. Mm. And... Um you're, you you do hide your light under a, under a bushel quite a bit. You've uh, you've been quite actively involved in lobby groups um, or one particular lobby group, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been able to, well, at least the sort of communications you've been able to have, and um, how much you've been able to help or not, as the case may be, as over the last yeah. couple of years. I think uh, a lot of people felt like us living in the middle of Italy. Um, that something had to be done. We had to do something to, to protect our rights. And there weren't any existing organisations to do that. There were the sort of tea with Mussolini, if I can call it that group <laughs> in Italy, where you go for Christmas carols with the ambassador. But they didn't regard uh, this as an issue for them because it was too political. So um, we started a group in Italy called British in Italy, and a lot of other groups were in the process starting up at the same time. And then at the beginning of 2017, um, we came together in what then became a coalition called British in Europe. Um, and we are the only group that speaks for British citizens in Europe with any authority. We've had a lot of access to um, high-level um, functionaries and politicians on both sides on that basis. Our counterpart in the UK is a thing called the Three Million, which is a group of EU citizens living in the UK. Um, we've always worked together. We've always seen, we're all in the same boat, we've always seen that as absolutely key. And it's been fundamental to our success in getting, I think, a lot of access to um, discussions. For example, during the negotiations of the citizens' right part of the withdrawal agreement, we had monthly debriefs with the negotiating teams on both sides. So we would discuss what they were going to be talking about next, what they just discussed, and where we thought there were problems, and had a very, very open exchange. Uh, it was more open with the EU than with the UK, but we did have it in the UK at official level. The problem in the UK has been getting access to ministers. No Secretary of State has been prepared to meet us. No Secretary of State for the 
exiting the EU has been prepared to meet us. And we have got a um, pretty good relationship with the Minister, Robin Walker, who deals with citizens' rights in DEXU. Um, but the, the level of, of access has not been the same. We, we've met Barnier um, twice, his deputy once. Um, we were in Brussels a couple of weeks ago and Barnier was passing, came up and shook our hands, that sort of thing. So it's been a, a much easier relationship on that side mm. than uh, on this side of the channel. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, 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 the three million, I, I mean, I, I hadn't, uh, uh, to my shame, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to them, but um, they did seem to have a very effective lobby. They got rid of that uh, fee for... Um, yeah. Applying for uh, you know the uh, uh, applying for the right to stay, um, almost like within about twenty four hours, I think of uh, inside twenty four hours of it being announced. Um, <coughs> I'm not sure it was quite as quick as that, but they have been pushing for it to be without fees for a long time, and they've been they've been extremely effective. They um, they were set up by a marketing man, uh, and it showed. I mean, the name itself is pretty good. We yeah. are the three million. Well, of course there aren't three million members, no. but they do represent three million people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In in the UK. Um, yeah. And they've been they've been very very effective. Yeah, a bit like a sort of an opt out, you know, collective action, you know, to keep it. Uh, yeah, little keep cost, it little cost yeah, joke sure. there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, and have you met any of the um, any of the sort of combined opposition to Brexit over here at all? Because um, they're not very well. They're not very cohesive. So I don't, I don't know whether I should even call them combined. But you know, certainly cross party. We took the view at the outset, and I think the three million did as well that it would be a mistake to become just another anti-Brexit group. Yeah. Because our, um, our USP, if you like, was that we are the people who are most directly affected. Our lives are going to be in turmoil unless something's done about it. Um, and for a long time, we, although obviously the majority of the people who uh, follow us or are members of our groups uh, <coughs> are anti-Brexit, um, we didn't make that part of our line. Um, the one thing that we did not get which was very important to us in the negotiations, was continued freedom of movement among the EU27 countries. Um, that sounds like a bit of um, a luxury to people living here. It's very far from that because an awful lot of people, um, of British citizens who've gone to work in Europe, have done so precisely because there aren't any boundaries. You get a, a three-year three contract as, a, as an IT contractor and you, that comes to an end, you need to find another job. There are people who've been doing that for decades yeah. in Europe and taking advantage of that and, and taking advantage of the very fluid boundaries. A lot of people uh, are in that position, particularly in the northern part of Europe. And so them not being able to have free movement has been very difficult. Other people, even in the south, in fact, throughout Europe, people who provide services across borders. So if you have uh, a base in Italy and you provide services in France, that is something that is going to come to an end um, as a result of Brexit. So we, we fought very hard for preserving, for those of us who have, if you like, shown faith in the European ideal and gone to live the other side of the channel in preserving that right of freedom of movement. That did not succeed. So are there some real sort of practical things that have happened that have affected people's lives already that you know in the sort of situation that you live in? Massively, yes. I mean, we're still talking about the no-deal scenario. Yes. If, if there's a deal, things are different. Yes. Um, but in the no-deal scenario, um, one of the rights that will disappear on the uh, 30th of March is uh, a thing called the S-1 scheme. The S-1 scheme is effectively a continuation of the NHS for 
UK pensioners who live in Europe. And they retired all those people to Europe knowing that this scheme was there. They would continue to get free uh, treatment or at least treatment on the same basis as others in the country they live in. And the bill would be paid for by the United Kingdom. There's a reciprocal arrangement going the other way, but yes. the, the UK tends to be the bigger payer um, because there are more of our pensioners living there than the other way around. Um, there was uh, an announcement on the UK government website the other day that that would come to an end on the 30th of March, which although those of us who've been following it very closely uh, knew that would happen, it wasn't widely known. And it caused panic uh, on the social media and people you meet have been saying, what am I going to do? Um, I've got a friend who is in the course of cancer treatment and needs that, that treatment desperately. Um, even people who haven't got anything particularly wrong with them at the moment are very, very worried because they think, what will I do if I get ill? Um, and that is, uh, that is a massive problem which has been causing real problems. We, we wrote a letter to the uh, Prime Minister last week saying you could deal with this unilaterally. You could say, although the scheme officially falls away, we will pay for that treatment, um, at least until we can sort out some bilateral agreements. Um, we haven't had a response to that yet. So far, there's no indication that that's what they're going to do, mm. which does mean that um, there are going to be huge problems for people um, on the, the 1st of April in, in the month or two following that. It really is quite hard to describe. It is as though um, having subscribed to the NHS all their lives, 180,000 people living in the north of England were told, sorry, you've got to pay for your medical care from now yeah. on. It really is that bad. Yeah. And, and politicians have talked about it a little bit. Um, there is a bill going through Parliament at the moment which enables the government to make uh, payments, to make un bilateral agreements with countries and to make unilateral payments. But they've not shown any sign of doing anything about uh, this particular issue at the moment. Um, the politicians are much more concerned about the EHIC scheme. And those of you who travel at all in Europe will know that as a British citizen, to, up until now, travelling in Europe, you had your EHIC card, and if you had some problems medically yeah, when you went to Europe, yeah. you, got, uh, you got your treatment for the free. The E101 or whatever it used to be called. It, it? it was the E101 yeah. and then it became EHIC. Yeah. Yeah. And that too will, will fall away. Politicians are desperately worried about that because they think 27 million people apparently have EHIC cards. Yes. And they're all going to be very upset not to have their EHIC card. But, <coughs> I mean, there are clearly examples where somebody desperately needed their e-hit card. They got very ill on holiday or something like that. Um, but it is actually just a substitute for travel insurance. Yes. Most people can get travel insurance. Yes. I'm, not, uh, I'm not advocating that the e-hit scheme isn't continued, but it's not the same as taking away your whole NHS, mm. which is what the, the S1 scheme yeah. is doing. So, I mean, that, that's more in the sort of, you know, if you've got to pay seven quid or something for a, you know, for a sort of a landing card or something for a... But, but it, that, that isn't a, that's probably not a deal breaker, frankly, for people sort of travelling abroad. In the no. same way, with if they cover themselves with some, you know, reasonable a reasonable annual travel policy, yeah, then you know that's probably money well spent. And yes. uh, I mean, it has an impact on older people who or yes. people with conditions, absolutely, who who can't travel. <coughs> One of the speakers in the House of Lords oh. on this bill yesterday gave the example of her mother, who is very old and needed oxygen went to France, and it was all organised so that mm. she had the oxygen when she left the United Kingdom, she had the oxygen all sorted out when she arrived in, uh, in France, 
and she could enjoy this mm. probably the last holiday of her lifetime. Mm. Those, are, you know, those are important things, but they're not quite the same degree of importance as whether you have any treatment at all. No, I completely follow <clears> that. Completely follow that. Um, so, in terms of the in terms of the wider um, position, I mean, how closely did you follow that? crazy week where the so-called meaningful vote was happening in terms of the House of Commons. Did you, were you watching that quite closely? Not as closely as I should. No, well, you, um, you didn't miss much, I think it's probably fair to say. Well, no, I was following what was happening. I didn't listen to every word because, frankly, you just got MP after MP standing up saying what you knew they were going to say mm. and then did a series of votes. I mean, the votes were quite interesting yes. and pretty disappointing Yes, um, on, on any view, for any, on any sensible view, whether you're a lever or a remainer, unless you're a crazy lever. That was a, a, a depressing week. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose the one thing I was, uh, I, you know, I mean, I, I give up trying to predict things, and um, so to avoid disappointment. But I was, I was disappointed that the uh, 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 that the amendment about the extension didn't go through. Yvette Coopers. Yvette Coopers. Yeah. yeah. Um, not because it, it, you know it seemed a bit. You know, it seemed a bit weak. It was only going to be three months or something. But you know, it, but it enabled. It, you know, it, it, it. I think it was an enabling um, bill. It would have been an enabling bill that would have allowed for further um, uh, extensions if required. And it's uh, to me, layman's view. You know, it is it, blindingly obvious there's going to have to be an extension in any well, event, whatever it, happens. The, the only thing with that is, I mean, if I were Europe, I wouldn't give an extension if. Britain just said, we'd like an extension, please. Exactly. They've got to say why. And They've what, got to say why, and it's got to have time. some purpose, because yeah, otherwise exactly. it's just kicking the can down the road for another six, nine months, whatever it is that they can get away with. Yes. And we'll end up in exactly the same position. Yes. I, I, the interesting thing about all of this is that <laughs> I think from the beginning of the negotiations, people like David Davis were saying, well, I've heard about these negotiations in Europe, and uh, everything always happens at the last minute. That's yeah, how it goes. always said that. Yeah. Um, well, there's some truth in that. <laughs> this time, who is the last minute? Side of the whole thing, it's the UK. The, mm. the deal was signed off what, four months before um, it was due to come into effect, which, in my mind, is still pretty last minute. But mm. four months is not the same as fifty-two days, and we haven't even got there. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, in terms of um, in terms of, uh, of non-UK citizens in Italy, I mean, amongst your sort of friends and neighbours over there, I mean, what's the general attitude? Are they, are they generally sort of sympathetic or disinterested? <laughs> A friend of ours who is um, Italian, she was born in, uh, in Italy, left age 19 and spent the next 25 years in the UK where she brought up her family and recently returned to, to Italy uh, to live. She said, the one thing that really struck me about meeting English people is they all say, I don't know any other English people, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. We tend not to live in, in little clusters. Um, so we don't have that much... Um, it's like personal dealing with people. We, we know on the internet what, what people are saying and they're, they're worried. Um, one or two we know who are going back because it's just all got too difficult. Mm. Um, and others we know like this friend of ours who are Europeans who, who've lived in the United Kingdom and they just don't like the atmosphere anymore. Mm. So they, they move for that reason, mm. um, which is very sad. I, I, the thing that, that I find most depressing about the whole thing is... is what will happen to young people mm. because it really has been a huge opportunity for people to, to get outside of their own country to understand another culture and probably to learn another language and um, 
Those things will continue after Brexit, obviously, but they'll be much more difficult and there won't be the encouragement and the schemes which there have been so far to, to make that happen. Mm. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, I mean, obviously, we haven't got, you know, anything like an official Practico position. It's really nothing to do with Practico, this uh, podcast. But from a personal point of view, um, you know, it, 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 it just seems to me to be enormously sad. You know, like a lot of people who live in London, I was... I was shocked when I woke up a few years ago just because, you know, it is true. You know, I live in this bubble. I didn't really know many people who'd have even contemplated voting leave for all of those, you know, for all of those reasons. But, you know, they are out there. Yep. And, um, you know, I think I heard somebody on a, on, a, on a specialist podcast the other day saying that, you know, that really they've got to move towards being, you know, tough on Brexit, tough on the causes of Brexit. <laughs> not, not, not a particularly popular phrase with the Corbynites, but um, nevertheless, you know, there's a, you know, th- that, that feeling of complete disenfranchisement that seems to have occurred. You know, hit the wrong target, um, but, you know, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges for us uh, over it's the completely understandable and, and, and undoubtedly right. You cannot allow inequality to go on building up at the level it has been yeah. um, since, really since Thatcher, Mm. not helped by Blair, mm. um, that has just been a, mm. a process which has got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have that conversation more often, the casual conversation more often now in, you know, this metropolitan elite bubble sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the opticians the other day and, and instead of talking about what he might have been talking about, you know, the chap behind the counter was talking about how sad it was that there was a fellow living on a tent in the middle of a roundabout in, you know, South Woodford, you know. Yeah. And he said, why, you know. And, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, that's, you know, that, that's something that I think if we don't address, I think, you know, the, the, you know, the, the minutiae about Brexit is really going to be neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, that's why uh, Corbyn's last election campaign was relatively successful, you know, mm. very successful in terms of what was expected. Um, but I don't think his solution to Europe is is the right one at all. Um, I think he's... Well, do you know what it is then? <laughs> well, I think his, his, his solution to Europe is, is to try for as long as possible to sit on the fence yeah. and not come clean. Um, he's come a bit cleaner now. He would like a customs union. Yeah. But he's come clean with that at a point where it's too late to negotiate it. Um, it's just possible, to, had there been a general election and had Corbyn got elected um, and gone to uh, Brussels, they might have said, all right, we'll, we're prepared to you know, tear up Theresa May's red lines and talk again quite briefly mm. to see if there is a, a way out there. But it was all um, much too late and, and the overall tactic of just sitting on the fence was, was very bad. Um, I certainly think now, <coughs> facing a crash out, um, Corbyn has a lot of responsibility. He really... I, my, we had a, a little sweepstake the other day in our committee on what was the likely outcome. And I was the only one who said, I thought there might be a deal and I thought there might be a deal because Corbyn at the last moment realises that unless he gets the troops to approve the withdrawal agreement that May mm. has negotiated, um, there will be a crash out and that will be much worse. That seems to me a possibility. Mm. Of all the mad possibilities that there are, that seems to me one. Yes. Yes, I mean, I suppose you know, none, none of us really know. And, and you know, I agree with... You know, uh, what a lot of people say is that, you know, the, one of the things that's been most depressing about the last couple of years is that I think we're, you know, we're also living through a crisis of journalism, not just a sort of crisis in politics. So getting some sort of, you know, objective coverage of this is quite difficult to find. Yeah. Um, but certainly it, it seems very plausible that, you know, we've got this problem where, 
Jeremy Corbyn's in a room where he only really listens to, you know, Seamus Milne and, you know, Len McCluskey and A and other sort of stuff. Theresa May, you know, sort of even smaller circle, mirror, mirror on the wall, you know, and yet so there's a complete vacuum of proper leadership. Yeah. Somewhere in there is a probably a consensus to do something proper, you know. And then we have this but, committee. But the the idea of finding it, I mean, I just there just seems to be no prospect of it. But we have this committee she appointed, wasn't it, last week to a sort of mixture of <laughs> leave and remain MPs to try and sort out a problem to the Irish backstop. Yeah. You know, she pointed out, what, six weeks before Brexit? Yeah, absolutely. If that kind of exactly, thing, yeah. that kind of discussion was yeah. absolutely essential and it hasn't happened. I, I was quite interested because I was in um, Denmark talking to the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament on Brexit, needed to say. And not the European Parliament, the Danish Parliament, um, talking about Brexit. And they have their strong differences of opinion. Any of you who follow Borgen um, mm. will know that. <laughs> yeah. But they do have a completely different way of going about it. They yeah. really do seek consensus yes. um, from quite different starting points. And in Britain, over Brexit, in Britain generally they don't do it. No. And in Britain over Brexit, they have been worse than ever because rather than just having two parties that won't talk to each other, you've got, you know, endless splits within each party yeah, exactly. which won't talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. And of course, yeah, we haven't got that tradition of having to have hashed things out in the same way that, you know, other Western European parliaments with PR and, you know, the like in terms of different, you know, perhaps a bit more an enlightened, you know, electoral system have yeah. had to work their way through. I did get a guided tour of the um, the Danish Parliament going down the corridor where they always used to meet in Borgen. Oh, so if you're a complete How, Borgen nut like I am, yeah, exactly, it was yeah. very exciting. Yeah, no, very good indeed. So it's a, a very bright note to end on. This is sort of, <laughs> that's the only thing. I was I was hesitated that this could be the discussion because you know it's sort of very hard to have a sort of like a happy upbeat ending to these sorts of chats. You know, you'd almost be better off talking about Jackson's fixed costs, but you know, <laughs> but we won't. But, so. Um, I hope our uh, I hope our seven listeners have found that enlightening, <laughs> as I have. Three of them would have switched. Three off. of them would have switched. Well, off. As soon as Absolutely. Which the way minute, it was going. the minute we heard, yeah, oh, they're the, you know, they're Remainers. Those two, you can tell. You know the type. And, <laughs> and uh, thanks for sparing the time, Jeremy. Always good to see you. Thanks, Andy.